session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get started, I first wanted to say a big thank you to the Persian Cultural Center of Atlanta, or Kanun, who hosted me this past weekend. And I was able to do three seminars there, one on Friday and two on Sunday and really had a great experience there and hope to go back sometime soon. But uh, they were very gracious in how they took care of me while I was there, and I really do appreciate that and opening up their center for me to have my seminars. And also to the people that I met there, thank you so much for coming out to see me. And some people even drew from drove from uh, far distances, and I was very honored and touched to have them there and to get to meet them and to share my seminars with them. So again, big thank you to all the people of Atlanta and the surrounding area that were there, and especially to the Persian Cultural Center of Atlanta for hosting me for the seminars this past weekend. Hope to come back sometime soon. And then I have some kind of housekeeping type of things to deal with, because last Wednesday I didn't end up having a show because of some routine electronic maintenance we had to do here at the radio station, but I didn't know till the day before. So I didn't get to talk about the book of the week from the previous week. Um, and then things got moved around and luckily I was able to reach out to the author of the book from the past week, which was Why You Eat What You Eat by Rachel Hertz. And she agreed to come on the show via telephone Wednesday. So I'll get to be on the air with her for this coming Wednesday's show to discuss her book, uh, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. So tune in Wednesday at 12 noon, Los Angeles time here on Radio Hamra to hear that show. And so because I'll be talking with her about that book Wednesday, tonight I'll be talking about the book of the week for this past week, which I didn't even announce on the air, but did uh, share on my social media. And I'll talk about Psych 101 by Paul Kleinman. Psych 101, A Crash Course in the Science of the Mind. And so this book is kind of like, a, as the book title itself says, an introductory of and a summary of a bunch of different basic psychological principles and key figures in psychology. And I did think it was kind of funny, and I shared this with some friends, that I had this book on my desk, as I always do, because when I have breaks or in between clients, I'll try to get some reading done to make sure I can get the books done each week. And so I had this book on my desk, and it says Psych 101. And so I wondered if my clients walked in wondering if I knew anything about psychology because I was reading this basic book. Um, but truthfully, it's always good to go back and learn the basics or refresh yourself in the basics. And there's a lot in this book 
that I hadn't learned. So that was also interesting for me. So um, this is a great book actually for someone who wants to just get an introduction of a lot of different topics and key figures in the field of psychology and some of the history of the field of psychology. And then you can, if you want, dive deeper into what are the, the topics or the figures you come across. So I enjoyed seeing um, the different topics that Paul Kleinman covered, but also uh, he would give little, very brief, but sometimes interesting biographies on different figures from Eric Fromm, Sigmund Freud, um, James Watson, and others. And I found that very interesting. And that's something I did want to talk about in relation to the book. Uh, because when we are talking about psychological theories, we of course hear the theory and we just think of it as somehow standing on its own, which in a way it should. We should hear it and evaluate it and judge it based on what we think about it without really maybe knowing too much. But at the same time, um, it can be very important for us to understand the context of those theories. And that's what I'll explain. So we hear about Freud's description of the psyche with the, um, the id, the ego, and the superego. And we hear his theories about development and psychosexual development and the stages that he has. And we can sometimes think, okay, this is just something that he observed and it's objective and this is what he thought and this is from what he saw. But what we always have to keep in mind is that there are so many factors that influence each individual. And when we're studying psychology, and even on the title or the cover of this book, A Crash Course in the Science of the Mind, that mind or that brain uh, that's being studied is being studied by that same mind or brain. So we obviously can't be objective when we do that. Of course, we can say we can never be objective in anything that we're doing, but especially when we're studying the thing with the thing that we're studying it with, obviously there's going to be issues there that there's going to be uh, subjectivity. And so we both, we have to keep in mind two very important things is the individual's unique history, meaning that their own upbringing and what they experienced, because this will inevitably influence and affect the way they view things, the way they view people and emotions, uh, the way they view relationships and what makes an, a healthy or unhealthy relationship what they will think it is important to focus on or what is most important when we're trying to understand psychology. So we have to be aware that uh, actually learning about the individual can give us some context into understanding what they even studied, because that's even the first question is what someone decides to study is based on what they think is important or these issues related to what they, who they have been. So we have to be aware of that, but also what they find. And then the other con contextual area we have to always be aware of is the person's historical context, meaning what was going on when and where they grew up or they were living, because that's going to have effects on what they see. So, for example, coming back to Sigmund Freud, we know that uh, even people that don't know much about him know that he talked a lot about sex. And this was something that he would talk about in almost all his theories and everything seemed to revolve around sex to him. Not exactly, but definitely we see that heavy influence. And we know that in the Victorian era when he was living, 
there was a lot of sexual suppression and repression. It wasn't proper to talk about sex or uh, to acknowledge sex, and it was very, very taboo. So we can see that that would make a few things happen. One, um, sex would be something that would seem very significant because it's it's put away so much. So to talk about it would be revolutionary and would be a big deal. But also we could imagine that the people he dealt with because of this historical context of so much sexual suppression and repression would have a lot of issues related to sex. And if they had sexual thoughts, maybe they would experience extreme shame related to that. And so because of that, he likely saw many patients dealing with high levels of shame related to sex, so it seemed that sex was the most important thing. And so uh, I'm by no means saying that sex is not important and does not actually relate to a lot of what happens in our development in our adult lives, but one might see that there was an over-inclusion uh, of sex in many of the theories that he had, which could have been strongly influenced by the historical context of when he grew up. Another key figure in the world of psychology is John Bowlby, who really was the first person to talk about attachment and attachment theory. Uh, actually, and what's important, this gives an idea of what he why he was so influential, but also, again, his own personal context was that when he was a baby, he would only spend about an hour each day with his mother, and that was what was customary for the social class of his family during that time. Because during that time, it was commonly believed that if you showed a child too much care and affection, they would become spoiled. Now, unfortunately, some people still hold on to this view that if you give a child too much care and affection and attention, they will become spoiled, whereas we actually know that it's when you give them too little attention or too little love in the ways they need it that they then become spoiled and try to get too much in other ways, kind of like if you were uh, hungry and thirsty, but you didn't get any food, you might drink too much water. It's kind of the same way, but people back then during um, the early 1900s believe that this was the case but also he bonded very closely with his nanny but at the age of four his nanny left and as the book says he experienced such a deep sadness that he compared it to losing a mother and so he didn't really get to form that attachment with his mother and he also lost this person that he was strongly attached to his attachment figure, his nanny at the age of four. So we can be pretty sure, or we can make a hypothesis that that personal context, his own personal history, had a big effect on what he ended up studying, what he found to be important and the huge impact he had in realizing that attachment is something important and something that we need to focus on and make sure that a strong attachment is created between the child and caregivers, and especially the child and usually the primary care caregiver, which historically has been the mother. So it's interesting to have this historical context when we look at these theories. And even I myself uh, try to keep this in mind because I try to look at the world and see what I can observe and make observations about relationships and emotions and our psyche and various things. But I know that I'm going to be influenced by my own psyche, 
what I've experienced, who I am, what the pains that I've experienced, the strengths that I even maybe have. It's very likely that we'll be influenced in thinking that the things we are good at are more important than things that we're not good at. So that could even influence what I might say or what I might think. My own thoughts and feelings about masculinity and femininity, which I talk about a lot, but of course, how I feel about myself is going to influence that. So I do try to make my observations, but then if I can try to even step back and take a look at what I am saying and thinking from almost like a third eye or, you know, third party view to see where might my own personal issues come into play. And of course, I can never do that all by myself and can consider that I'm going to be objective, but I can do my best, but also in my own therapy and in exploring things with other people, sharing ideas with others and hearing what they have to say, that can help me try to become closer to objective, even if I can't ever fully achieve that objectivity. So I try to keep that in mind myself. And the historical context that we are currently in is going to influence what I think, as it will everyone else who makes commentary, both socially and on, in psychology, we're going to be affected by what's going on around us. And sometimes it's not so clear what's going on around us because what is just is. And we accept things a lot of times as being that way. So in the Victorian era, they didn't feel that they were repressing their sexuality. They thought this was the appropriate way to act and behave and to deal with sex was to make it taboo and not talk about it. It wasn't that they said we're going to suppress and repress our sexuality in an unhealthy way. They thought it was actually quite healthy or when women are not given rights or were not given rights back then, the intellectuals would come up with quote unquote scientific types of reasons for why that was the case or should be the case or why females were weaker in various ways. And it wasn't that they actually were weaker, but it was a way of explaining what they were observing, which was itself created by people. So it is something interesting to think about when we look at the field of psychology. And throughout the book, you do see some of the ugly side of psychology because a lot of the studies he cites would be considered quite unethical by today's standards. Things like um, the Milgram study on obedience, where the participants thought they were shocking someone to the point of extreme pain, even to the point where maybe they'd killed the person because the person no longer responded, but it was not an actual person, it was an actor, or as they call them in psychological experiments, someone who's in on the experiment is called a confederate. So there's a lot of unethical studies that have been done. So you see some of the ugly side uh, of psychology, but also seeing, uh, reading a book like this, you get to see the ways that different theorists came up with what they came up with, the times that they came up with it, and seeing it in the historical and personal context, I think really gives you a lot more information and can make you understand it in a much deeper level and also allow you to understand and digest the theories in a way that makes more sense when you realize what might have been influencing that person. And again, we have to think about that when we hear someone talking today. And I have to think about that when I'm talking today of how the world I'm living in and the current environment I'm living in and my own personal history are going to influence and affect the way I see things, um, the theories I come up with, the ideas I come up with, what I think is important and not important, and what I choose to focus on. So I think that was interesting. But there was a lot of information in the book. And so if you want a nice, it's a 
fairly quick read because the pages are short and the summaries make it so that you're going from section to section really quickly and that makes it a little bit faster to read. Uh, check out the book Psych 101, A Crash Course in the Science of the Mind by Paul Kleinman. And then again on Wednesday, I'll be talking about the book of the week from uh, about in a way two weeks ago, uh, Why You Eat What You Eat by Dr. Rachel Hertz. And she'll be joining me on the show Wednesday at 12 noon. And then the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week, I know that's a lot of books, it is Together Closer by Giovanni Frazetto. Together Closer, The Art and Science of Intimacy in Friendship, Love, and Family. I'll post that picture on social media soon. And something I'll do, which was um, a recommendation by a few friends and listeners, will was to post the books of the week a few weeks in advance to give people a chance to possibly get them and read them also. So I'll be starting that pretty soon. So look for that on my social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to talk in this segment, um, and I actually have seen a lot of responses on Instagram. I put a request again for questions or topics to talk about, and I think I'll get to one of them in the next segment. But in this segment, I wanted to talk about something related to relationships, and that's a topic that comes up a lot. And I want to make a little disclaimer. I am not trying to blame the victim in any way in this segment. And I think we have to be very careful not to blame victims. Um, And a lot of times we like to blame victims because it helps us maintain this feeling and this thought that we live in a fair world. So you see sometimes people will talk about something that happened. Someone is walking down the street and they got mugged or they got raped or something horrible happened to them. And of course, we don't feel very good for it. And I've heard this called need for a just world as kind of a psychological concept or construct. But we, because of that need for a just world, because it feels safer to think, hey, I live in a world that things are fair, things happen for a reason. If something bad happens to you, that means you did something bad or made a mistake. Bad things don't happen to good people when they're doing good things or when they're not doing anything wrong. So you'll hear about a story where someone was robbed or hurt or raped or whatever it was, and you'll say, at first you might be like, oh, that sounds scary, sounds horrible, but a lot of people quickly will go to, well, you know, maybe he shouldn't have been walking down the street that late, or she shouldn't have been, what was she wearing? A very classic one when we um, look at rape is what was she wearing is quickly a way of trying to see was she somehow quote unquote asking for it uh, when it should be very clear that violating someone in that way is never okay and no one can actually ask for that. Um, but we, because we want to feel like things are fair and also feel safer because if something can happen to someone when they don't do anything wrong, that's scary. But if we feel like they did something wrong and as long as I avoid it, I won't get hurt, that makes us feel safer. But it's not realistic. Sometimes people don't do anything wrong and bad things happen to them. That's unfortunately just the way 
things go. That's the way the world is. Things like that do happen. So we know that there is a tendency for us to want to blame the victim. And I'll try to be careful that in this segment, that's not what I do. And I might touch on that later on. Um, But what I wanted to talk about is when we are in relationships or interactions where we continue to get hurt, but we continue to stay in those relationships. And this could be as severe as domestic violence that's very extreme and there's actual physical violence or even less extreme physical violence all the way to emotional hurt uh, that a person causes us or even things like infidelity um, and things like that, which of course can be very hurtful and serious as well. Because what I'm trying to make the point of is that what people do is on them. But what we choose to do in response to what they do is on us. And what we choose to do in allowing us to be hurt again, that is on us too. We make that decision. And so here I'll add that when we look at relationships of domestic violence, it can seem very easy to say, just leave. And that's what most people think. And because of that, going back to blaming the victim, many people will say, well, if she stayed, and I say she because the overwhelming majority of women tend to be victims or the victims tend to be women, um, although men are as well, and that's underreported, but nonetheless, still, it seems that the overwhelming majority are women. Um, if If she stays in that domestically violent relationship, then she wants it at some level, or she likes it even. She might have even enjoy it, is what we're saying. Whereas the person really is suffering. But leaving the relationship is not so simple as just saying, well, if you don't like it, leave. It's just like, think about addiction. Well, if it's ruining your life to drink, stop drinking. It's not that simple. It could seem that simple from the outside. When someone is experiencing it, it is very different. And this is really true, and I'll just make this quick comment. This is true in general. Almost anyone's problems, if we just look at it from that surface level and from the outside, seem simple. Oh, you're not studying enough? Just sit down and study more. Oh, you're not being emotionally open with your partner? Yeah, be more emotionally open. Tell them things. You're an alcoholic? Stop drinking. You're overweight? Eat less, exercise more. Um, You're not working hard? You wake up early and start working harder. They can seem very simple, but we know that life is a lot more difficult than that and each one of us have challenges and what might be hard for someone else will be easy for us and what might be easy for them might be difficult for us and might be the challenge that we face in our life we might have a phobia that to someone else they think oh my god that's so stupid but they might have something that they're afraid of and to us we don't care about so we have to keep that in mind too that's very easy to look down on others and whatever problems or issues they're dealing with Um, but in a way this is a defense to get away from ourselves and to feel better about ourselves because each one of us is imperfect and has our own issues. So domestic violence, those types of relationships are very difficult to get out of. It's not so simple to just say leave. Sometimes there's threats of even things like death, um, and also survival is not always easy for the victim. So let me make that comment and come back to what I was saying about this idea that We are responsible for how we respond and how we interact with someone. And I'm thinking of this even more when it comes to smaller emotional abuses or even just transgressions. Because you'll see people who get treated poorly by someone 
and they keep going back to that person or keep giving them a chance to repeat that. And it's interesting because I was talking about Freud a few times in the first segment, and he talked about a repetition compulsion, but sometimes we have this this uh, observation that people will repeat the same pains and the same kinds of even traumas throughout their life somehow, even as if they're compelled to repeat them. And that's what we'll see. And maybe you've had a friend who have you seen do this or you yourself have done this, that it might be even the same person or the same types of hurts that you allow to happen. I mentioned infidelity, so someone keeps dating people that cheat on them. And maybe they cheat on them and no real changes are made. The person just begs for forgiveness and says, I won't do it again, but the relationship is not worked on, the affair is not addressed, what might have led to the affair is not addressed and worked through, and the person just blindly accepts that it won't happen again because the person just tells them that it won't, and then it happens again, and they feel bad, and they might feel even ashamed. I can't believe I let myself get hurt again in this way, and then they might repeat it again and again and again. And so this is where what I said at the beginning is what I wanted to repeat. What someone does, their actions is on them. How we respond to it and what we choose to do That's on us. And so we have to take that responsibility and hear ourselves because, again, I'm not trying to blame the victim, but we have to be aware of sometimes when we try to make ourselves the victim. And there could be lots of reasons for this. Um, For one, maybe we're comfortable being the victim in the way that we're becoming a victim again. So we've been hurt in some way or seen something in our history that feels familiar, feels comfortable, and feels like home to us, so we keep creating it and seeking it out. And so the comfort zone, and this came up in almost every seminar I did uh, over the weekend, the comfort zone, it sounds nice, comfort, but it's really this dangerous place because it leaves us unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and unhappy. And it also means we're not going to grow because you don't grow when you stay comfortable. And it also means you're very likely to repeat the past pains because those are going to feel comfortable. You're going to be used to them. You're going to be accustomed to experiencing those things. So sometimes it's that we're used to those things, so we continue them. But also, if we make ourselves the victims to other people, we get a few, you know, kind of secondary advantages as well. One is, if they're hurting us, we can then say, because of that hurt, I can't do as much, or I'm not as responsible for my own life. If it wasn't for them, maybe I would be doing better, I would be stronger, I would go further, but look, they're hurting me and they keep hurting me. So of course, how can I go far if they hurt me? How can I be successful in this area of my life if they're hurting me in this way? How can I be happy if this person keeps doing these things to me? And so again, this is another type of comfort, even though they might be miserable and unhappy, they might choose it because it's safer than risking being free of that and having to be on their own. It's a lot easier to say, I have no choice but to do nothing than to say, and that's why I'm not successful, than to actually try to be successful and risk actual failure or risk not making it or risk the anxiety of dealing with that whole situation. So sometimes you'll see people that they walk into a door and something bad happens to them, but then they keep walking into that same door. 
So if some, someone comes up to you and says, you know, I walked into the store and then I stepped on the ground and I got a shock on my leg. And you'd be like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. But then if they told you every day they kept opening that door and putting their foot in, after a while you'd say, you know, I don't know why you keep doing that to yourself. And it's hard for me to, you know, be mad at that room or whoever's creating that situation more than I'm upset with you for keeping yourself there or keep going back to that place. And that's what we have to think of. What are those doors that we keep walking in? And not just relationally, but I was focusing here in relationships. What are those, those doors you keep walking in that you virtually know are going to give you a bad result, but you keep on going over and over again, doing the same thing? We can't do the same thing and expect different results. But as I was saying, sometimes maybe in an unconscious way, we are seeking that same result. And now another reason why we sometimes like getting hurt by people is that there can be this feeling that they owe us. And sometimes you'll see people that in a way, I mean, enjoy, maybe is not the best word, but in a way they enjoy being a victim, or we can say they repeatedly create situations where they become a victim. And you'll see that they like it in the sense that they feel that if I'm, if you did something that hurt me, you owe me. So in that way, maybe you can't leave me. You'll always still owe me for what you did. You will be in debt to me or indebted to me. And so because of that, you can't leave me. So it could be a way of almost holding on to someone and saying that as long as I keep things where you've hurt me and it's in my favor, the balance is in my favor, you'll have to stick around. So it could give people this false sense of um, commitment or false sense of attachment or security to the person that they love or the person they want to be close to, even though that's not the case. Even though if someone is treating you really poorly, there's a good chance they might not want to be with you anymore. They might leave that relationship. And then what's interesting is you'll see the person on the other side say, can you believe it? After all he or she did to me, they left me. In a way saying almost like everything I gave them by letting them hurt me, they still left. Not realizing that it was up to you to not let them hurt you that many times. You weren't winning anything by letting someone hurt you again and again and again in the same ways. That was up to you. Their actions was on them or is on them. Your response and your decision to stay in that relationship or to get out of it is on you and to move on and to not let yourself get hurt. And we have to be willing to risk being in a relationship where we don't get hurt in that way. And for those people who prefer this dynamic, and it could seem strange to think someone would prefer getting hurt, but I covered some of the reasons why that might be the case, but someone has to actually risk being in a relationship where they don't get treated poorly. And a big part of this is going to be related to their own feelings of self-esteem and self-worth. Maybe they feel that it's easier to be in a relationship where they're getting hurt because deep down they don't believe that anyone would want to stay with them and would want to treat them well, that no one would treat them in a loving way and would uh, not hurt them, that anyone would hurt them that would stay with them. So there isn't even that belief that they can get it and that they deserve to be treated well. So if you find yourself in this situation, you know, you say, oh, I'm talking to this girl and she keeps leading me on and then hurting me. She keeps leading me on and hurting me. What you have to look at is, yes, what her behavior might be is not good and not okay, 
But what are you doing to not stop this cycle? Either you can walk away completely and say, you keep leading me on and hurting me. I'm not going to accept that. Or you can stop them and say, hey, I need you to be clear and direct with me. What's going on here? But because the person generally will fear losing that person so much, they won't take that risk. They're too afraid to actually say, hey, let's look at what's going on in a fear that they're going to lose that person and that fear of abandonment. Even though what they have is painful, even though the person is not making them feel good, they still have the fear of losing it. Maybe again, because this is what they think is the best they can get. This is what they feel love is based on their experience and what they saw in their home and had even with their own parents. But because of that, they're afraid to lose it. And you've probably been there before yourself. You're talking to someone, you're getting to know someone, you really like them. You don't really know how they feel or they're not really treating you in a way that you feel good about, but you're afraid to make things clear because you're afraid if you make it clear, you're going to lose them. So you'll maintain this pseudo relationship or keep the relationship in this middle ground, even though it makes you feel unhappy because you're afraid to lose it. And we have to be willing to lose something we don't want or that's not good for us in order to get something that is good for us. We have to be willing to take that risk. And we have to take the responsibility in our own lives for who we let into our lives and who we allow to continually hurt us. And that old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, makes a lot of sense. If someone keeps hurting you the same way, it's up to you to put an end to it. Not say, I'm waiting for them to stop doing that thing. You are not responsible and can't control what they do, but you have 100% control over what you choose to do. And you can make the choice to walk away from the painful relationship and to risk possibly having and creating something better for yourself. All right, we've reached our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back. As I mentioned before, I had put a question on Instagram for people to write in questions or what they wanted me to talk about tonight. And that's at Dr. Fadid on air. And I got several responses, but one I, I thought I would take was from Samanen. She asked how to raise strong children. And um, maybe I should second guess wanting to talk about that one because that is quite a, a heavy topic and one that would be very difficult to cover and one that I definitely can't cover in one subject or one topic uh, and many um, people would be able to contribute more to it than I'll be able to in this moment but I did want to talk about that because I thought it was an interesting question and there's a few ways to look at that or a few things to think about when we look at that question how to raise strong children so my overall thought which I'll uh, expound on is that to raise a strong child we have to teach that child or show that child that who he or she is at their core is good and lovable and deserves to be expressed. Because the strongest any of us will be is when we love ourselves, when we feel good about ourselves, and when we then express ourselves at our fullest potential in all the aspects of who we are. That's when we are at our strongest. So as a parent, we want to give our children that message that they are okay, 
that they are lovable, that whoever they are, whatever they are, is beautiful, and that needs to be expressed, and that's when they will be their strongest. Now, one thing that comes to mind when I hear that word strong, because we really do have to define that word in a way to to know about what we're talking about or what we're trying to bring about. But one thing I can hear in that word, and I'm not saying this is what the person who asked the question meant, but what might what some people might hear or think of when they hear strong is a certain type of person, um, like a leader, or not just maybe a leader is not the right word, or someone who's very outspoken, and we think of that strong, and who will speak their mind and who will be social and will talk to a lot of people, that's strong. And this is where this idea of extroverts versus introverts had come into play. And this idea that to many people, I think an extrovert appears stronger than an introvert. If we see two people and one of them is speaking more loudly and talking to more people, for a lot of people and a lot of parents, they might think that's the stronger kid. And that's what I should be trying to raise. But I think a great book that I'm very happy I read last year, I believe it was, uh, is Quiet by Susan Cain, The Power of Introverts. And in that book, she talks about how um, introverts can be very powerful and strong and how they contribute to society in incredible ways and in wonderful ways. And they might not be what we think of as that stereotypical strong person who is outspoken and every child now is encouraged to be that way. And she talks about how there's this very strong bias of being extrovert versus introverted and that every child should be outspoken and want to give talks and uh, interact with people and make lots of friends. And if they don't, somehow something is wrong with their kid or we'll even label them as shy and have this negative way of looking at them that, oh, I'm sorry, my kid is not talking with all the kids. He or she is shy that there's something to be ashamed of about who they are, something bad, and they need to be something different. So I think this is something that can be very dangerous for a parent to um, think of or think of in this way because some people are going to be more naturally introverted, and that can be very good, and uh, we need that. There are going to be people who might reflect more and be able to be more creative in ways because they like to think and sit and be more with themselves and reflect and that can be wonderful and definitely there's nothing wrong with being extroverted either but we want to make it very clear to our kids and really have this mindset that there isn't a better way of being when it comes to extroverted or introverted that we want to let them be who they are so that's something important that when i hear that idea of strong children uh, i could think of that idea that strong means a certain type of child and so to me, when we talk about raising strong children, it's not about raising certain types of children so that they have to have certain characteristics in their personality, but as I mentioned earlier, to allow them to become the best version of themselves and to love themselves for who they are and express that as strongly as they can, to express all their potentiality at its strongest level rather than being a quote-unquote strong person with certain characteristics. Now, we can talk about strong maybe in another way of emotionally being okay to a degree and emotionally feeling strong. And that's something that I think every child can have. It's not about extrovert or introvert when we talk about strong in this way. It's about having a good handle on your emotions 
And we can't control completely our emotions. I don't agree with this notion that you can just control your emotions and always be happy. And I don't even agree with always being happy as being a goal, that we should just always be happy all of the time, 100% of the time. But I don't think we can just control our emotions. So when I talk about having this type of emotional strength, and in a way we can consider it a part of emotional intelligence or a skill of emotional intelligence, it's being able to manage our emotions, meaning that we can't control them. Sometimes we're going to feel the bad feelings, quote unquote, the negative emotions that we can talk about, like sadness and anger, which even uh, you can't see me doing air quotes, but when I say bad or negative, I'm putting air quotes because I think we have to be careful not to label these as bad feelings because we still need them and they can be very good. Um, but that when we feel whatever our feelings are, we're able to manage them in a certain way and, and be able to handle them well, whatever that they may be. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you're not going to sometimes break down. You're not going to sometimes act out or make bad decisions. Everyone is still going to do that. So we're not talking about something all or nothing or black or white where you have to either be perfectly managing your feelings or um, you're, you know, have bad or are not strong in this way. But we want to be able to have some type of hold and be able to manage those feelings. So if we want to raise children in this way, um, going back to what I was saying before, a big way to do that is to make them feel okay with who they are. And so when it comes to their feelings, validating and showing understanding, empathizing with how they feel, whatever that may be. So a lot of parents are very good at empathizing and validating happiness because that feels good to them. But when there's sadness or anger, and especially when that anger is directed towards them, they're not so good. And they start to dismiss, invalidate, make the kids feel bad, make the kids feel like they're a burden for having those feelings. So if you want to raise a emotionally strong child, and that even itself, as I'm hearing myself say it, I can see how someone hears that as not crying, because crying is weak, is the way that we people tend to think of it. But that's not at all what I'm saying. Emotionally strong means that something might make them sad and make them cry, and that's okay. But that the way they're going to deal with that will be different because of that emotional strength. They'll feel like it's okay. They'll understand that the feeling will pass, even though they're sad right now. They'll value the emotion and try to understand what it's telling them, what it could teach them. And with that, it'll make it easier for them to deal with it or cope with it in a healthier way. So emotionally strong to me, if we want to raise an emotionally strong child, that's a child who feels okay feeling what he or she feels, knows that they're okay to feel what they feel. And also the second part, when we're talking about the managing side, is helping them learn ways to, in a healthy way, deal with and cope with their feelings. And children from a very young age start to learn to self-soothe themselves. Even before a year of age, children can learn how to soothe themselves by, let's say, sucking on their thumb. Or even a different way, it's not really self-soothing, but in managing their feelings, something uh, very cute that you see sometimes with babies when they're very young, you'll look at them and have really nice eye contact and they might smile, especially let's say if it's with their, their mother or their father, and they'll love it. They'll be so excited and they're smiling at their parent and then you'll see them look away. And the looking away isn't that they're disengaging because they don't like it or they're not having fun or enjoying it. It's actually because they're enjoying it so much, almost too much, that they look away to in a way calm themselves down 
to not be so overwhelmed and then come back and re-engage and enjoy the fun again, which to me is very adorable and cute just to think that looking at their mom or their dad or even sometimes someone else uh, gets them so excited that they really almost can't handle it and they look away. And now some parents, they actually, when they see the kid look away, they feel upset or they think something is wrong. And they'll even turn the kid's head or they'll put themselves back in the child's view because they think something is wrong. The kid is disconnecting. The kid doesn't want to look at them or even worse, they might think of like, oh, the child has autism because they don't want to connect with me. And they don't realize that this is the child just learning how to moderate their own feelings in some very basic way. And so they need to do that. So we want to teach our kids and help our kids learn how to soothe themselves and deal with their feelings in healthy ways. And one of the best ways we can do that is first letting them understand that these negative or bad feelings or feelings that don't feel good um, aren't something really scary or dangerous, aren't something that needs to just be avoided and eliminated as quickly as possible. And so what we have to do is first be okay with these feelings ourselves, Because if I don't feel okay with sadness, I'm not going to be able to tolerate it in you. And I'm especially not going to be able to tolerate it in my child because it's going to make me feel bad to see you sad. And I imagine that if you're sad because I can't tolerate it, you must be miserable or really in a bad place. And especially as a parent, I might feel guilty that if my kid is sad, that means I'm somehow being a bad parent and I can't handle that either. So I'm going to quickly try to get rid of your sadness. Let's give you a cookie. Let's distract you. Let's do something to make you not be sad. Let's tell you you shouldn't be sad. Let's tell you that crying is not for boys or crying is not good or whatever it is. But we send this message to the kid to quickly eliminate the feeling. And that is very, very harmful. Because one, you're teaching the child that those feelings are bad. And you are bad when you have those feelings and unlovable and a burden. And you make mommy or daddy unhappy. And this is, of course, going to make the child feel bad because they have those feelings. So they're going to think that a big part of themselves is bad, is unlovable, is something that they shouldn't show people, which will have a host of negative effects throughout their life. So you're sending them uh, that message. But then also you're teaching them that when you feel something like that, get rid of it as quickly as possible. Eat something, play something, hit something. Um, If they get older, drink something, smoke something, take some drug, because that feeling, they're intolerable, they're not okay, and you have to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Whatever the means are, that really doesn't matter. Just get rid of it. So if your kid is sad and you think you have to give them a cookie every time to cheer them up, you are teaching them a bad lesson, which is this food takes away the pain or a drug or a substance can take away the pain, and that's very bad. Instead, what you want to teach them is, okay, this is not a crisis. It doesn't feel good, so I'm empathizing with you. You're not undermining the pain, but you're recognizing and validating the pain. And let's see how we can deal with it. Maybe a hug will help you feel better, or maybe some deep breaths will help you calm down. Is that going to help? Or maybe even uh, playing with some toy for a minute will calm you down or soothe you the feel of your teddy bear. Of course, depending on their age, it's going to be different things. As they get older, the coping mechanisms will become more sophisticated. But you teach your kids that these feelings are not scary and are not something to be completely avoided, but that they can deal with them and they will pass. And that's the good part. And you can even talk to them about that. Not while it's happening. Persian parents sometimes say you'll get older and forget about what happened when a kid cries from getting hurt. But I mean that after it happens, you can talk and say, wow, you were really upset before. How are you feeling now? And the child say, oh, I'm feeling more okay. 
and you can tell them, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's like something we can remember that when we're feeling down, that feeling isn't going to last forever. And that's a good thing. But when we're feeling it, it's good to feel it and, and pay attention to what we're feeling. But it's always good to keep in mind that no feeling is going to last forever. And so you can have these conversations with your kids and help them become emotionally stronger. So thank you for that question from Samane on my um, Instagram page on how to raise strong children. I hope, I know I just scratched the surface, but shared some thoughts on that. So always please message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with questions you have or topics you want to have. Of course, you can always call in in the studio, 310-441-0555, and I'll be here to answer your questions and very happy to do so. Uh, but that is the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there and everyone who shared their thoughts on Instagram with me. Look forward to being with you on Wednesday. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.